Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Ben Jealous, president of People for the American Way, who discusses the urgency of pushing President Biden and Senate Democrats to move quickly on passage of two critical voting rights bills. Morris Pearl, a former managing director with asset manager BlackRock, who now chairs the Patriotic Millionaires Group, talks about his new book, Tax the Rich, How Wise Loopholes and Lobbyists Make the Rich Even Richer. And Matt Nelson, executive director of Presente.org, who examines California's proposed new regulation that would prohibit new oil wells from being built within 3,200 feet of homes, schools, and hospitals. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. The Intercept reports that two years ago, the FBI launched an investigation into a failed arms sale in Libya that involves Eric Prince, founder of the Blackwater Mercenary Army. The investigation is looking into the attempted sale of Jordanian helicopters and arms to support Libyan militia leader Khalifa Haftar in his failed campaign to take over the capital city of Tripoli. Prince's efforts included arranging meetings with a member of then-President Donald Trump's National Security Council, but Jordanian government officials halted the deal. In February, a United Nations investigation found Prince and others violated the 2011 arms embargo against Libya in the midst of that nation's bloody civil war. FBI agents working out of the Washington, D.C. field office are also investigating Prince's role in building and marketing a modified crop duster that he planned to sell as a military aircraft in conflicts across the globe. Blackwater was banned from Iraq in 2007 after its forces killed 17 Iraqi civilians and wounded 20 more. Prince later sold Blackwater and moved to the United Arab Emirates, where he built a secret mercenary army for the de facto ruler, Mohammed bin Zayed, known as MBZ. It's been nearly 30 years since the end of apartheid in South Africa, but a new study finds that it remains one of the most unequal countries in the world. The Economist reports that a study of South Africa's economy from 1993 to 2019 found that the share of income going to the top 10% of earners grew from 57% to 66%, levels higher than in any other comparable nation. The average income of the top 1% increased by 50%, while that of the poorest half fell by more than 30% after inflation. The income going to the top 1% is roughly the same as it was at the end of the apartheid era. After taking power in 1994, the African National Congress established a social welfare system with benefits for pensioners, children, and the poor. But the programs were funded by regressive consumption taxes, where the grants for children were not sufficient to purchase nutritious food. Now, there's a growing campaign by NGOs and community activist groups to create a universal basic income grant. 
One seemingly positive trend identified by economists is the narrowing of the underlying racial income gap. In the 1990s, whites earned about seven times more than blacks. By the end of the 2010s, they made about four times more. But this narrowing is mostly attributable to affirmative action laws and strong trade unions, which helped increase the share of good-paying jobs held by blacks. The study maintains that today's inequality stems from policies of the white supremacist past, but also the ANC's failure to help most black South Africans overcome that racist legacy. President Joe Biden signed the bipartisan $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill just in time to address the backed-up ports in Savannah, Georgia, and nearby South Carolina. Two dozen container ships wait offshore as the blocked supply chain hampers recovery in the pandemic-ravaged economy. The Christian Science Monitor reports that the infrastructure bill, in addition to rebuilding roads, bridges, and rails, as well as expanding access to clean drinking water and high-speed internet, will provide new revenue to the Georgia Port Authority to create pop-up container yards. While in nearby South Carolina, these federal funds could jumpstart a long-planned port terminal. According to Yale University economist Ray Fair, since the early 1970s, U.S. spending on infrastructure has been in decline, suggesting that the country became less concerned with future generations' welfare. He maintains that it would take at least $2.4 trillion of infrastructure investment for the U.S. to reach the average spending of other industrialized countries. These days, however, voting for building roads, bridges, and new jobs is no longer a bipartisan tradition as Republican House members who supported the bill have received death threats from the GOP's increasingly extremist, right-wing, pro-Trump base. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. In recent months, President Biden and congressional Democrats have focused almost all their attention on passage of two major infrastructure bills. After the House voted to pass the $1.2 trillion bipartisan bill funding roads, bridges, and broadband internet on November 5th, the president signed the bill into law. But Senate Democrats have yet to fully debate and vote on Biden's more expansive $1.75 trillion human infrastructure bill or Build Back Better plan. Meanwhile, Republicans have had a very different focus. Across the country, the GOP has proposed 425 voter suppression bills in 49 states, passing 33 such laws in 19 states, making it more difficult for communities of color, young people, and other Democratic-leaning constituencies to vote. But because Democrats have thus far failed to pass two pieces of legislation, restoring the Voting Rights Act of 1965, Gutted by the Supreme Court, more than 150 scholars of U.S. democracy warn that there's only a slim window of opportunity left to act, and midnight is approaching. These scholars from top U.S. universities say that unless the majority party temporarily suspends the Senate filibuster rule, 
and passes the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, free and fair elections will be undermined and likely result in an extended period of minority rule, which a majority of the country would reject as undemocratic and illegitimate. Your reporter spoke with Ben Jealous, president of People for the American Way, who's been arrested for participating in civil disobedience actions, demanding voting rights protections. Here he discusses the urgency of pushing President Biden and Senate Democrats to move quickly to pass voting rights legislation. And what we're asking of Joe Biden is simple. We're asking that President Biden uh, call on the Senate, just like he did for the infrastructure bill, just to get the job done, to, to clear a path for an up or down vote. Vice President Harris, it's worth noting, has done her job. She has cobbled together every Democratic senator. And you know that's like herding cats, especially with Cinema and Manchin. We have them all on board for the John Lewis bill. We have them all on board for the Freedom to Vote Act. We simply need to clear a path for an up or down vote. And that really doesn't happen ever unless the president of the United States calls on his party to, to just get it done, create a carve out in the filibuster, and get a vote on the bill. And so that's what we're demanding now. It's important it be done this month, it be done in December, because if we don't, then we will see a wave of partisan gerrymandering, really a vindictive wave of partisan gerrymandering in a way that we haven't seen in a very, very long time. President Biden has been really laser focused on his bipartisan infrastructure bill and now this Build Back Better bill, uh, this piece of massive legislation that was whittled down, unfortunately, but still a lot of great things in there for people all across the country of all parties. And that's important, of course. But I, I take it you're of the opinion that voting rights should have been the priority and maybe these infrastructure bills could have come later. Or, or what is your view? Well, I mean, look, I think we can walk and chew gum at the same time. As important as roads and bridges are, as important as infrastructure is, as desperately needed as that bill is and as supportive as in a democracy, you're always existing on the edge of a knife. And there's never anything more important than actually preserving the democracy itself. It should not be harder. It certainly should not be harder to pass a voting rights bill in a democracy than it is to pass a bill to secure our roads and bridges. The real obstacle, it seems, to passing these two critical pieces of voting rights legislation is the filibuster, and they need 51 votes, all 50 Democratic senators plus Vice President Kamala Harris, to usher in an exception to the filibuster, which has been done many times before on different issues. Lately, I've been reading news accounts that Kristen Sinema, Democratic Senator of Arizona, has uh, restated her opposition to reforming the filibuster, which could kill this whole thing. What, what's the latest that you're hearing, and how, if that opposition stays, stays current, how could that be overcome? You know, I think, honestly, it's just going to have to be a push. The reality is that's going to need the president of the United States involved. There are things that only the president can convince a senator to do. And the reality is that we only have to get rid of the filibuster. There's many ways to reform the filibuster that would still keep it in place. You know, we only have to create a carve-out. There are ways to reform. We could go back to the days of Jimmy Stewart, the days that Mr. Smith goes to Washington, the days of, you know, you're going to have to run your mouth to block this bill, and the minute you stop, we're going to bring it to a floor vote. There are also ways to do it where you basically have kind of multiple votes, and each time you lower the threshold until you get down to 51. 
in America, we believe that majorities matter. And if they do, then they should matter in the U.S. Senate. It's ridiculous that you cannot pass a bill in the U.S. Senate with 51 votes. You actually have to have 60 out of 100 votes just to get a vote on the floor. You know, there's nothing in the Constitution about the filibuster. This is an accident of history. Quite frankly, it's been used most frequently throughout history to preserve really bad things like Jim Crow uh, or the exclusion of, of women from voting. So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. Someone's going to put up some resistance. I'm hopeful that one way or the other we can get an upper town vote on voting rights. Can public pressure in, for instance, Senator Sinema's home state of Arizona move her to do that? Or does it have to be national action? Um, uh, I think both. You know, I mean, yeah. people are definitely organizing in Arizona. It's important. We've been doing some of that work, too. Right. Quite honestly, I think she also, frankly, seems to have national ambition. I think she needs to understand that people in this country are deeply upset with her obstructionism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, you know, it's worth people, you know, giving a call. Just call the Senate hotline and, you know, ask for her office. Let her know. But also, frankly, call the White House and really demand that Joe Biden take action. As you said before, uh, Ben, during the 2021 legislative sessions around the country, more more than 425 bills that promoted the restriction of voting access were introduced in 49 states. As you said, almost every state has had these things. 33 such bills have passed and been signed into law in 19 states. And this includes, you know, the voter suppression, but also issues of election subversion. And that's the case where we have some states that are putting in place uh, regulations that allows the legislature to overturn the popular will and the winner of elections in the future. Really alarming stuff. What in the bills that are that you're working to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and the Freedom to Vote Act can address that, especially the voter subversion issues? In a nutshell, the John Lewis bill restores the power of the U.S. Department of Justice to stop bad redistricting plans, bad voter suppression bills uh, before they take effect. So it, it restores the power of the DOJ to preempt bad laws that would suppress the vote, that would deny people their democratic rights. The Freedom to Vote Act puts out the fires that are already exist, deals with these bad laws that have been passed, deals with you know these restrictions on Sunday voting that have been passed, deals with these you know removal of polling places from minority neighborhoods uh, that have been passed. So um, we need both. One, if you will, prevents the next round of attempts to light the Constitution on fire and, and destroy our voting rights, and the other one puts out the flames that are that are currently burning in our democracy. That was Ben Jealous, president of People for the American Way who formerly served as CEO of the NAACP. Find more analysis and commentary on the threat to voting rights in U.S. democracy by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The Panama Papers leak of millions of financial documents in 2016 and later the Pandora Papers in 2021 exposed the global offshore tax havens used by the world's wealthiest and most powerful people to hide their wealth and avoid paying taxes. But Morris Pearl and Erica Payne argue in their new book titled Tax the Rich, How Lies, Loopholes, and Lobbyists Make the Rich Even Richer, that the vast majority of America's wealthiest families don't need to deposit their money in offshore tax havens to evade taxes. Rather, they say, 
America's rich, with the help of politicians they control, legally use the U.S. tax code to minimize or evade paying their tax bill. Your reporter spoke with Pearl, a former managing director at BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, who now chairs the Patriotic Millionaires, a group of hundreds of high-net-worth Americans who work to ensure that corporations and millionaires and billionaires like themselves pay their fair share in taxes. Here Pearl discusses the inner workings of a system designed to make rich people richer and everyone else poorer. What I figured out as we were writing the book and talking to people is that different types of people make money in different ways. Most people, most of you listening to this radio show right now, get a paycheck every week or every month and have tax deducted from that paycheck. And you understand how much money you make and how much goes to taxes. You can look at your pay stubs. However, it's different if you're very rich. I don't get a paycheck. I just take money out of my brokerage account all the time. So wealthy people who are already rich don't need any income. And we only tax income in this country. So as long as I can spend a lot of money without having any income, I don't have to pay any taxes. And if you're already rich, you don't need any income. And that's basically why those people who are already rich are getting richer and richer and richer because their money is growing as their investments are doing well, and they don't pay any income taxes. Whereas most people, even if they're trying to save money, a huge amount of every paycheck goes to income taxes. So they fall farther and farther behind every single year. And we try to explain in the book how all these different tax rules work and why it is that the richest people among us don't pay very much taxes at all in comparison to their income. How is it in the United States, Morris, that we don't tax wealth and just tax income, as you just described? Are there other countries that tax the wealth of their citizens who evade income taxes? We did have a wealth tax when the country was started. Almost most taxes were real estate taxes back then. And most wealth was real estate. Everyone who was wealthy owned land. And so they were taxed on their wealth. And actually, most of you still are taxed on your wealth. If you're a homeowner, almost anywhere in the United States, you pay a wealth tax on most of your wealth, which is your home. You pay a real estate tax every year on that, on that wealth, on that home, which is most of most people's wealth. I don't pay a wealth tax being an investor because there's no wealth tax on things like stocks and bonds and investments and pretty much anything else except for real estate. It's not that our countries changed the rules. It's that things have evolved so that most wealth is now in the form of businesses and corporations and stock and not actual land, which is taxed through a wealth tax. So we need to change that. We feel that we need to get the richest people among us to pay a wealth tax just like all of you are doing now. Elizabeth Warren was among some legislators who are proposing a specific wealth tax. What's your view of what she's proposed or what others have proposed that you think would work best? Yeah, I think we need something like that. And Senator Wyden, Ron Wyden of um, Oregon, has made proposals that are actually fairly similar in terms of taxing unrealized capital gains. And we need something like that. And people say, oh, it's too complicated. We can't deal with it. Well, the few people who have billions of dollars of wealth generally hire accountants anyway to deal with their taxes. They can deal with it. 
the country already assesses wealth when they do estate taxes. So we can do this every year, and they can have rules for dealing with things you don't know what their value is and figuring it out and catching up later and making it up with interest or whatever. So I'm not really worried about the complexities of this. I think we do need not on regular people. That was the problem they had in France was they tried to get everyone to pay a wealth tax. And all of the homeowners in France were pretty upset about that. We need to charge a wealth tax not on people's first million, not on their second million, not even on their hundredth million. But we do need to charge a wealth tax on their second billion dollars of wealth, as Elizabeth Warren says. That was Morris Pearl, chair of the group Patriotic Millionaires, who, along with Erica Payne, are authors of the book Tax the Rich, How Lies, Loopholes, and Lobbyists Make the Rich Even Richer. Find more discussion on the U.S. tax system that unfairly rewards the nation's wealthiest people by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. It might surprise many to learn that California is one of the biggest oil-producing states in the U.S. Drilling rigs dot the terrain of many counties, including Los Angeles and Kern counties, where residents are forced to coexist with polluting extraction equipment, especially in low-income and communities of color. Such proximity leads to negative health impacts, such as asthma. There's currently no statewide limitation on the distance such equipment can be built from where people live. But now Governor Gavin Newsom's administration, through the Department of Conservation's Geologic Energy Management Division, or CalGEM, has proposed a new rule that would establish a 3,200-foot buffer zone or setback, prohibiting oil wells from being built near homes, schools, hospitals, nursing homes, and other sensitive locations. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Matt Nelson, Executive Director of Presente.org, the largest Latinx digital organizing group in the U.S. The group, with more than 500,000 members, responds to a variety of human rights and civil rights issues. Presente is one of the organizations that's now advocating for universal setbacks for both oil and gas development infrastructure, including existing wells, and is calling for an emergency response to ban all new fossil fuel permits in California until the proposed final rules are in effect. So recently, Governor Gavin Newsom, you know, after years of public pressure, has instructed the California Geologic Energy Management Division, CalGEM, to establish rules that will protect people from the health impacts of oil and gas extraction. And so that's what's called setbacks. It means that if the current proposed rule goes into place, there will be a 3,200-foot setback uh, for new wells, existing wells, you know, from any what's considered sensitive location. So those are homes, schools, and other sensitive locations where people are exposed to the disastrous impacts of fossil fuel extraction and proximity. And as you know, we know you can't discuss climate justice without talking about racial justice and economic justice. So 
the people most impacted by proximity to fossil fuel extraction are Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, everyday people who are forced to live next to pollutants and toxins and all the other horrible things that are emitted from fossil fuel extraction. Calgem, the department who regulates this area, says that they need to create a rule that includes a 3,200-foot safety zone. The rule is currently now being discussed. So our demands are to strengthen the rule. I think that the governor has said that he wants a, a, I think that is essentially one kilometer setback. You know, that's something that we think is a, is a good starting point. But the rule is not finalized until, you know, fairly involved process. Right now, we're in public comment period. So the proposed rule we feel needs to be strengthened to include everything I, I mentioned. But now is sort of the negotiation period. Matt Nelson, I didn't think existing infrastructure in people's backyards are included. I thought they were going to be grandfathered in, no? You know, there, there are so many ways to also address current wells. Like so many of these are in disrepair. They are like have been abandoned by the uh, oil and gas industry. And so I think it's not as clean cut as new versus existing. But I think what we've been clear on is no site, whether or not it's like fully functional or has been abandoned by the oil industry, should be close to where we live and where our children go to school. Because right now it has been too weak and too vague and sort of leaving it up to you know, advocates to fight it out with the oil industry to convince Calgem to put forth and execute on the most on the strongest rule possible. We really do think that this rule is just an opportunity to end all permitting of oil and gas extraction within the 3,200 foot setback. It's another thing that the, um, the governor could do now. You know, these rulemaking processes take months and years to complete sometimes. That said, we know that the governor could make this happen now. You know, there could be a moratorium right now until the, the rulemaking is finalized. And so there's no reason why the governor would, would allow the extraction and the like suffering associated with it to continue while the rulemaking process drags on. Does this rule only cover oil or does it also cover gas? The gas extraction is another piece where um, the governor has committed and the state has committed to phase out fracking. And so I think it's a parallel track. Um, but this setback is focused more on oil. That was Matt Nelson, executive director of Presente.org. Learn more about California's proposed buffer zone for the state's oil wells by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org 
where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WTND in Macomb, Illinois, WRFN in Nashville, Tennessee, KOWA in Olympia, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program is produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.